Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll learn more about a new early childhood initiative in the city of New Haven. It's called NH Child. We'll sit down with the program's interim director. First, we take you inside Expressione's Cultural Center. Expressione's is a nonprofit organization that offers bilingual art programs in the community and works directly with New London public school students to highlight Latin American culture. We'll hear more about its mission coming up when I sit down with Executive Director Jose Garrecochea. Expressione's has a gallery on 84 Bank Street, where it features the work of artists and residents who work with schoolchildren. Recently, we drove down to New London to see the gallery for ourselves and meet Expressione's artists and residents. I'm Ramon Ostolaza. I'm from Lima, Peru. I'm an engineer. I'm an artist. But I'm also an educator. I, I, I love to teach, to share what I, I learn. Ramon grew up in Lima, where his family's influence drew out his artistic side. My father studied art, and uh, he, he liked painting, and, and, uh, but he, he actually worked on a bank. But uh, yes, I, I, I had this, this chance to go on weekends with his, his friends and go to openings and go to their, their, their ateliers and see them working. And sometimes, you know, a two-year-old kid will mess something that might be really important <laughs> yes but uh, yeah that that's uh, so art has been part of my life all the time so when you were going out with your father and his friends you had a sketchbook or you were drawing what you saw around you yeah well we'd be drawing what i what i saw uh, around i will learn about techniques of sketching or mixing colors or perspective or how to get you know when you're looking something and an animal, a horse, and it suddenly moves, yes, and, and you need to just really capture what you saw quickly. So this this sort of, of techniques, I, I learned it from them and keep practicing. <laughs> so how did that experience lead you to a, becoming a forestry engineer? Tell us what that is exactly. Well, forestry engineer is, is a very mixed uh, career. We, we said we're a Jack of all trades and master of none. We know about you know uh, ecology. We know about animals, uh, animal be- behaviors, so some biology. We we learn a lot of engineering on designing and calculations for uh, wood resistance and chemistry for wood transformation, and also all, all the management of a forest because forests are really complex uh, environments or. I see them know this. It's like a living thing. You know, when you go to the Amazon, and the Amazon is a huge beast. It's a monster. <laughs> and, yeah. So, this career was, it's, it's really interesting. But but uh, it opened me the, the opportunity to go places. Not because, you know, there's, there are no forests in the city of Lima. 
You know, Lima is a big city. We have 10 million going to 12 million people living there. It's concrete everywhere. There are not many forests. Forests are far away. So I need to go to the highlands. I need to go to the jungle. I need to work in the desert. I've, I've worked in different uh, environments and, and had a chance to meet people from, from there. You know, how many people can say, okay, uh, I woke up in the morning in a tent in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Yes, I go uh, jump into a helicopter, fly for 30 minutes, then drop out of, from the helicopter in a rope, 75 meters, uh, that's uh, 210 feet to the ground and be left there for, with a, a team of seven people. And we need to go to some place and find some group of people and start talking with them and getting into an agreement to see, okay, can we actually go and, and explore this place? And there are people that leave there. And, and, and then going back and finding a canoe and then going down a river and get paid for that. Yes, there's a lot of people that actually pay a lot of money for the, doing one of those things. I, I was getting paid for doing that thing. And so you did that for nearly 30 years. Yeah. So how did you then, did you, all this time, were you still uh, creating art? Or is this something that you kind of transitioned to? No, I, 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 I've been sketching, doodling, doing my pieces all the time. Maybe... Not uh, not with the intention of doing a, a show or making a, a you know a collection of art, but just doing w what I was feeling. Sometimes in the in the forest, I just was able to do doodle or something like that. I'll show you the, my sketchbooks and and then uh, uh, and then when I came back to, uh, into my home, I will have more time and maybe start doing some sculpting. I love working with materials, you know, not only uh, paper, I will work wood, metal, whatever comes into, into my hands. And uh, that's it. And that's it. Expressione's gallery sits inside a brick building in front of the Thames River. The afternoon sun lights up the table in front of us where Ramon has placed his leather-bound sketchbook. This is where his ideas begin. This show uh, begins a long time ago, really long time ago, uh, the rebel, the, the the purple one, is a hippo head with wings of uh, colorful wings, and, and this was a design I made like eight years ago. Uh, it, it it was basically designed. Uh, I was going to do something on 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 the on the deck of my skateboard, so I wanted something that was like kind of expressing a part of me, and that's the rebel. That's why a flying hippo, it's purple. It has, you know, wings of every color you can imagine. Why, uh, why a hippo? Because my understanding is they can not? be pretty ferocious. Yes, they can be. Actually, that's, that's one of the points. You, you will see them and say, oh, yeah, that's big, that's cute. Yeah, you, you can it, it even gives you, you know, to, to hug him and kill him. But it's a fierce animal. If, he, if you don't get it, it will destroy everything in its path. A hippo can be, can be dangerous, but you need just to understand him and, and respect him. 
Yes, and a flying hippo is something that can be, you know, <laughs> uh, something to to be taken in consideration. Yes, the uh, other other elements, for example, uh, the elephant. The elephant is is uh, a derivation from a character from a cartoon. There is there is a cartoon called uh, Adventure Time, and then there here appears this uh, two-headed elephant in one chapter. It was a loose character that appeared and it captured my attention and 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 then i did a couple of of drawings of, of him uh, i designed a sticker i don't know if i have it and uh i'm also a big fan of, of sci-fi and literature so i read a lot i did a a, a design of of this of this elephant is flying with the background of of the city from Blade Runner, and then did a stamp uh, that was saying this is a, the test to find if you were a replicant or not. So this is that test, and and the flying hippo as you're sitting in, in your in your balcony, just relaxing, the flying uh, the flying uh, the ancient mystical elephant appears in front of you, and you're not doing nothing. Why you're not doing nothing? And so I, I made a postcard and sent it to my friends. And very few of them uh, got, got the question and, uh, and answered me. But most of them were, what? What have you done? What's this? But that was interesting. It's an experiment. So I keep experimenting with people all the time. And, uh, and so the masks appeared as, first as a two-headed polyhedral mask. But then uh, it was kind of, of heavy and, and unbalanced. So it turned into this new version and uh, it has a third eye. Yes. And, on its uh, forehead. Yes, on, on its forehead. And uh, so it's also a reference to, to Ganesh, but it's also a, a, a reference to Found Ganesh. It's a, a character from, from Lovecraft uh, and the Cthulhu meets. Uh, uh, ancient gods. So then, uh, well, as you can see, it, it was over there for another show. So there are seven masks displayed here yeah, in Expressione. There are a couple more, uh, at least one more that is going, uh, and there's, there's a, a ninth one that is in process. So Ramon, why did you choose these particular masks? Those are part of, of myself. The, the show is called Split, and it's, a, it's an introspection into my personality and the different aspects of my personality. Yes, so you have the first one that is just uh, in blank right now. It's a dragon, yes, it's, and it's Tiamat, it's chaos. Yes, but it's not chaos, uh, it's not evil, it's just chaos it, 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 that is it just generates random stuff but from that random stuff it, it learns it, it analyzes cause and effect uh, the next one is, is is a warrior it doesn't have a name yes it's just uh, the protector part I'm, I'm a father I'm a kind of granddad so you know it has parts of 
maybe Corinthian and classic uh, Etruscan uh, helmets, but also some medieval uh, parts uh, of them and some pre-Hispanic stuff mixed in it. Uh, the next one is it's a, another dragon, it's different. It's a force of nature. It's going to be covered in wood and in, in living things. This is where we live. I'm talking with Ramon Ostalaza, an artist in residence at Expressiones, a new London art organization. His art show, Split, opens this weekend. The exhibit features deeply hued masks that Ramon created using a variety of materials. Some are shaped like the head of an elephant or a hippo, but Ramon's imagination makes them look like beasts you've never seen before, complete with rainbow feathers and bright horns. Traditional Peruvian art is often colorful. I asked Ramon, who grew up in Peru, if Andean culture is reflected in his artwork. Yes, there are some part of, of you know, uh, of the culture from not all, only Lima or, or, or the highlands or the jungle. It's basically from all over the world. You, you will see uh, references to, I don't know, uh, Asian culture, to European culture, to South American culture popular culture, to cartoons, to anime. <laughs> that mask on near the end uh, reminds me a little bit of Viking culture. Coincidence? Uh, no. The feathers and the way the, the mask almost looks like a, a metal. Yeah, uh, well, it was not going to be that. It was going to be actually uh, different. Uh, when I start creating, uh, it's a process, it's a complex process, you know. Sometimes I'm working in, on a character and then some other is just knocking on my head and saying, hey, I need to come out, you know, and, and, then, and then it's like that. Uh, the, the Moche mask was working with this from an origami piece I, I made one day, dining, dining uh, in this place that is near my home in Lima. And, uh, and it was initially going to be something like that, that simple. But uh, I, th I thought it needed some, something to support. And then I started working on, on the structure from, from uh, the warrior. But then, but then uh, I, I saw the piece and said, no, this is not. It, it is taking its own life. And it's, uh, yeah, it resembled some, some uh, warrior mask. But for me, it was more like, like an Etruscan mask. That's, that's why uh, Etruscan, Etruscos, it's, it's uh, from in, before Rome even. It's older than that. It's from the Greeks and, and all this stuff. So if you take a closer look, the piece will have uh, all these uh, spirals, yes, and all this riveted uh, like in wire that, that they, they had. The upper, uh, the, the, the upper part, the dragon, is more like uh, the dragon from the Dolundur helm that is mentioned in Tolkien's book and uh, Sons of Hurin, I guess. I don't, I, I don't recall the exact name of, of the book. Tiamat comes from Babylonian uh, culture. It's really ancient. Ramon Ostalaza is an artist from Peru who's working with the New London nonprofit Expresiones. Its Artists in Residence program pairs Ramon with New London public school students. He's been working with fourth graders at Harbor Elementary School. Yes, well, with, with the students, uh, it's, 
we are working with them on this project that is about uh, Viking culture. The intention is not necessarily the Vikings, but Vikings are, are captivating. It's, the intention is to, to show them that not everything is as they told you. So we start with them with, with this question of who were the Vikings? And they say, oh no, these big guys, you know, swords and coming and pillaging and wrecking everything and stealing gold. And then I start talking with them and, and explaining that they, it was just one part of, of what they did. But they were artists, they were engineers, they were, you know, uh, they had a, a very, very rich culture. They wrote, they make poems, they, there's not much painting, but they carved on stones. You will find these beautiful uh, uh, rune stones. They will have jewelry with very intricate patterns. And uh, they will also trade and travel along uh, all, all over the world. They even came here, you know, before uh, Columbus. So they were the real guys that, that found this, this part of the world, yes. So, and when they learn these things, how do they react? It's, it's fun, because most of them, uh, it's like, but I, I thought this was like that, no. And, and then they said, oh, so then this other stuff can, uh, can, can be like that. And they start imagining and creating their own vision. And, and from that, it's like, okay, you go and learn. You go and, and find out what, what, what you're doing. So they create, uh, they create their, their own visions of, of that. So we've been working on, for example, the, their tunics. As they are developing their own character. So they, we give them uh, T-shirts and they start designing their own tunics and doing them. So every class we, we get together and we get into character. So I dress like a Viking, they dress like uh, with their tunics. Uh, we were uh, learning about the runes, so they were drawing the runes, and now we're working on shields. There was a, a small shield uh, I, with paper, but uh, I'll show you. In a paper plate, this kid will have drawn a, uh, what he imagines is a wolf head. And then he learned the, the, from the class we were working on the runes, he actually learned the, the alphabet and he wrote a message. But uh, there are other guys, this, this girl, she, she loves clown, clowns. So she's drawing clowns in, in, as her shield. So they can express their own. Yes, it, it's not, you have to do a dragon or a bear or, no, it's, the idea behind a shield is to, uh, everyone can identify you. So what, what is your message? What, what, how do you want to be identified? Oh, Ramon, you told us that you're here for two months before you head yes. back to Lima. Uh, so, so besides the art show here at Expressiones, what do you think are the goals for your work as an artist with these students? Well, if, if they can uh, not only learn to express them, and learn to investigate by themselves and find out that there are many other things in the world that are not exactly as you were told. That will be great. Yes. And if from them, some of, 
from them, one of them actually ends up liking some history that will be better. And so I, I, I run a, a similar program in Lima based on, on one of the viceroys, and one of the kids actually started asking a lot of, uh, of questions about this guy. That was fun. Ramon, it's a pleasure to meet you and to speak with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me too. I, I really love coming here. Uh, people in Expressiones are really, really, really kind. I, I feel really close to them. It's like, I feel like I, I'm with family. Ramon Ostalaza is the artist in residence at Expressiones in New London. His art show, Split, opens tomorrow, March 22nd. It features several masks he created that, in his words, are a mixture of characters from his Imaginarium. You can see pictures from our visit to Expressiones on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, including the Where We Live team wearing some of Ramon's one-of-a-kind masks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll introduce you to the co-founder of Expressiones. This is Where We Live. We live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We met Ramon Ostalaza earlier. He's from Peru and is the artist in residence at Expressiones Cultural Center in New London. Jose Garay-Cochea is the executive director of the nonprofit. I sat down with him inside the art gallery to hear more about his work to highlight Latin American arts and culture. Well, we are located at 84 Bank Street in downtown of New London. We are basically a block from the train station. Um, as a non-profit, we are here in New London since 2009. Our first location was around the corner on State Street, 74 State Street. We were there for uh, three years, and then after that, we moved to this location at 84 Bank Street. Basically, here we are six, seven years. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you come from before you moved to Connecticut? <laughs> uh, I'm originally from Chile. Um, my initial background is a civil engineer. Um, I was working as an engineer for probably 13 years. Uh, I love to work uh, as an engineer, but later in life I discovered I love education. It's not much money in education, but I have the passion. I love that. And the money in some way I can figure it out. Um, then, being in Chile, I study art administration. 
And then I was working in both areas as an engineer, but also creating different uh, cultural projects. Because of those projects, I started to participate in different art fairs in Art Buenos Aires, Art Venezuela, in Art Miami, in Art New York. I don't know how I ended up here, but it was never was part of the plan. Never was part of the plan. You mentioned that you always had, you were drawn to education. So uh, part of the mission of Expressiones is to connect art with the community, especially the children. Can you walk us through uh, the origins of that and what you're doing now? Well, basically everything started when I came to this country. Um, and I realized people starting calling me that and Latino. I was Latino, well, and Latino. Uh, and then I feel surprised because I never identified myself as a Latino. Olga was a person. I was a human living in South America. But here they put you a label Latino. But I realized was a misperception about what is Latino. Because uh, people in this area starting to approach me, asking me, uh, with different question. Uh, if my place in Chile will love to eat black beans and rice. And I say, no, but Latino love that. Say, well, San Latino, but doesn't mean all Latino love black beans and rice. Then was too many detail I realized was a misperception. Then trying to figure it out how we can improve that perception, we decide to invite people uh, to have dinner, and we call cultural dinner. We were not non-profit uh, non at that time. Uh, my partner and I, we decide to have dinner. Then we find a topic like uh, the onion, and we find point about the onion, music about the onion, and we design a menu about the onion to explain to the people who we are. Then we have music, food, and art. Uh, uh, and people are starting to realize, oh, wow, this is really interesting. We didn't know that. Then, for example, one of the interesting topics was the potato. When the people say, well, Peru have over a hundred different kind of potato. So it's, really? Yes, we have plenty, even though I'm not from Peru, I'm from Chile, but uh, traveling, I realize of that. And uh, when you design a menu about potato, when you design a uh, music about potato, everything about potato, people love that. And we are starting to realize uh, we are improving the real connection between two different cultures. Then um, we, we realized we, we were using our own money to do that. At the beginning was fine, but this is starting to grow. And then my partner is starting selling art and then we are using 10% of that, 20%, 40%, 50%, say, no, we need to find an, a better way. And we decide to become a non-profit organization. Even though at that time we already offering uh, activity to the local school. Uh, but also we realize the perception about the administrator about art is something extremely superficial. It's something not important for the education. Then when you try to explain to them how important is art in the education, how art opens the eyes of the family or the kid, it's a huge change. Well, it took us probably six years 
for the administration to understand what we are doing. At the beginning, they say, no, no, we are fine. Art is fine. Art is just something so simple. Now we are connecting art with all the skills. But took years for the people. So when you talk about the administration, this is the New London Public School District? Mostly. Mostly. We always, well, we started in Stonington. Stonington is very uh, nice area, but we realized we were in the wrong place because we love diversity. I love food. I love to have options. There was not much option, even though people, phenomenal people, but nice people, but not much option. We were there only for one year. And then we moved to New London, trying to find the right place. And we realized New London is our place, because if you see, I don't have the number in my mind, but probably students here, 42, 43% of the students in this area uh, coming from different countries. Then that makes this this community very diverse. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Jose Garre Cochea, the executive director of Expressiones, a nonprofit located on Bank Street in New London, Connecticut. Earlier, we talked with the organization's current artist in residence, Ramon Ostalaza, who's been bringing his creativity into the local public schools. We had the opportunity to speak to Ramon, who is a wonderful man. You could just tell by speaking with him, very gregarious. You could see that he knows how to connect with people. So he's one of the examples of the resident artists that Expressiones has brought to New London. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the program where Ramon is going into the schools and helping connect? Uh, the students with his art? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we started uh, inviting to the New London Public School Administrator to really understand the role of the art in the core curriculum. At the beginning, we were only after school program because they were not really convinced about our offer. Then they accept us to be part of the in-class. Then we started to having meeting between the principal the teacher, the artist, and us. And the artist is starting to talk about uh, his or her own skills, and we develop at that moment and a full project. That project was connecting the core curriculum. Then we are inserting the artist in the entire school system. Uh, Ramon came here probably three years ago. Uh, one of the things uh, catch my attention really deeply at that time was summertime. During the summer here is very intensive because the artist is working five days a week, the full day with different organizations. At that time, Ramon was working with kids from a boys and girls club. The kids there are, were coming from different backgrounds, different family issues, but Ramon have a personality who can really engage all of them and keep them really concentrated in the project. He did a phenomenal job, phenomenal job. Then with Ramon, he proposed a project about a, an old, the recreation, an old village in Europe to bring to New London. I found fantastic because we are connecting history, science, sociology, how the kids can interact, how they can respect different options, different decisions. But also we are using the art as a channel to really bring and uh, do that. How does Expressiones uh, get uh, financial support and what are your goals to expand this statewide? 
Well, initially we started with the art sale, uh, mostly percentage of the art sale was to this program but then when we were growing we, we realized we need more fun and that was the moment when we decided to become a non-profit organization um, then we are basically applying for grant different organization we are really happy with Hartford Hartford have different foundation and they are extremely supportive of us when I say extremely because they really believe in what we are doing here then we are really pleased with that. Um, our intention is uh, to expand this program, hopefully to all the school in New London and out of New London. We, we had a meeting, I don't know, a few months ago with the former uh, executive director of the Connecticut Office of the Art. And she was really happy with all our project and she was inviting us to work in Hartford. I guess Hartford will be a phenomenal place, but we need to find the right moment to really expand to a city like that. But this is the intention. You talked earlier about how uh, you started uh, getting roots into the community by addressing misperceptions and exposing members of the community who may not have been familiar with Latino culture. Uh, when you look at uh, news and events that are happening today, uh, certain rhetoric being repeated about Latinos, uh, how does that make you feel and does it make you more committed to the work you're doing? Well, uh, this is a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, uh, I know being Latino in this moment in this country, we are the bottom part of the society. We are not the top one. We have really bad experience in the, in the past just because we are Latino. Uh, but for me, it's the opposite effect. It's more inspiration. It's more motivation to do more and more activity. Because I really believe the people who are exposed to diversity, people like myself, my accent is really strong. My, uh, I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching at Connecticut College. I'm teaching at Three River Community College. And my first speech to my students is, give me a week. After a week, you will accustom to my accent. After that, we will work together really well then is exposure. Then that is exactly the situation. That was Jose Garay Cochea, Executive Director of Expressiones in New London, Connecticut. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, exposing children to different types of enrichment has multiple benefits, but not all communities have nonprofits that can offer these kinds of programs. After the break, we'll hear about efforts in New Haven to connect young children to early childhood initiatives. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Me enamoré del aire, ay, del aire me enamoré. Y como el amor es aire, ay, en el aire me quedé. Bonito es el aire, pero ¿quién podrá? Detener su marcha, su rumbo final Bonito es el aire, pero ¿quién podrá Detener su marcha, su rumbo final? 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Where We Live is coming to a coffee shop near you. We've been hosting coffee breaks at local cafes around the state to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? You can join me and Where We Live producers Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff and other members of our team Tuesday, March 26th. That's next week at Purgatory Coffee Roasters in Middletown, Connecticut. You can learn more at our Facebook page. Just search for Where We Live. Now, multiple studies have shown early childhood education helps children learn. It not only makes them more likely to succeed in school, but it also has long-term positive effects in their communities. But access to quality programs is limited, and there's a new initiative in New Haven that aims to change this by reaching all children from birth to age eight. I want to welcome into our studio Alex Schiavone. She's executive director of the Friends Center for Children and interim program director of NH Child. Alex, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I mentioned this new initiative, NH Child. What does that stand for, and uh, what are some of the goals? Right. Um, NH Child is uh, stands for New Haven Children's Ideal Learning District, and it is an initiative that focuses on two uh, major goals, which is access and quality. And then under each pathway, there are three different buckets of work. So access is about creating more spots for children. It's about figuring out how to fund those spots, and then it's figuring out how to get parents into the spots. And quality looks at parent engagement and empowerment work, professional learning for teachers, and degree granting for early childhood educators. I know for several years uh, there's been a focus on uh, universal pre-K or preschool, and oftentimes uh, uh, how it gets stopped up is this thinking about funding and what the state can provide. So you had mentioned improving access. So how do you do that to reach all, like we're talking about uh, 14,000 children in New Haven? Yes, so in New Haven there are um, 14,000 children. The uh, existing system in the zero to five is is pretty much not there. So we have this huge opportunity to really create a system. Um, the first thing we need to do is actually create slots. There are about 3,000 children who would like access to early childhood education that don't have it. So we have a plan, a 10-year plan, to create uh, 2,500 spaces with the um, option of adding another 500 as we go through the 10 years, depending on birth rates and, and how things like that. And um, that will be done through 20 center-based programs and 68 home daycare programs. So we're really thinking about um, re- reaching into communities and figuring out what communities need, not just assuming that uh, a center or a home care mm-hmm. is, is the right option for that community. I was looking into your bio. You're a longtime uh, resident of New Haven. I am. You have a, a long background in early education. I do. <laughs> so I'm just curious when we think about, um, when we mentioned ideal learning, what are we talking about? Yeah, and you know, what, what were some of these impacts? Of, of having this coalition try to work towards this goal, Alex? Yeah. Um, so lots there. One is I just would l- uh, really like to reiterate that I am a longtime New Havener, fourth generation, and I love New Haven. And I think that if you love something, you should try to make it better or have it see its best self. And I think right now we have opportunity to really become a child-friendly city. And one of the ways to do that is to really provide this early care and education. Um, at an optim- in an optimal way. And that relates to the ideal learning phrase. So ideal learning is really about finding a developmentally appropriate way to deliver early care and education to children, and then the families become part of that, that unit, obviously. So it's things like play-based work, relationship-based. It's looking at um, emotional intelligence. It's thinking about equity and the way that uh, racial and ethnic um, barriers come up for young children. It's thinking um, from a strength-based perspective, assuming that the child and the family bring strengths to the, to the table and how do we um, enhance those strengths and how do we counterbalance systemic issues such as racism and um, lack of access to care. 
It's also um, an inquiry-based approach, so thinking about learning as the child directing the learning and the teacher acting as a guide or a catalyst. Um, and it's based on hundreds of years of research uh, in terms of brain development. And so the programs that came together are Bank Street College of Education, Friends, which is the Quaker uh, network throughout the country, Reggio Emilia, Tools of the Mind, Waldorf, and Montessori are really the impetus. Um, and that was brought together by the Trust for Learning in 2015 to create this initiative and to think about how we can um, saturate a market and create a place-based pilot to really show what happens to a community when you create access to high quality for everyone, regardless of their race, their income, um, and where they live. And I understand that uh, this initiative has received about a million dollars. Yes. And is it all privately funded to, you know, again, to launch these centers, as you mentioned? Yes. Yeah, so um, we were uh, fortunate enough to receive about 600000 in in-kind and initial donations, which took us through 2015 to about um, two months ago and three months ago. And now we have been given a gift of a million dollars. Um, uh, unexpectedly and just um, I think is a huge testament to um, New Haven in terms of people who really support this kind of work and see the importance of a systemic change in the way that we deliver um, early childhood education. It was given by a private um, uh, foundation, family foundation, and we are, as always, exceptionally grateful for the belief in, in this work. So when you, uh, there's a lot to tackle here, yes. but first when we mention birth to five, this is an extension to birth to eight. So why that extension, another three yes. years? Um, well, early childhood education is really uh, defined as birth to eight. So that was one of the reasons why we thought it was very important to include that in this initiative. A lot of initiatives that are happening around the country, um, and we studied about 37 other initiatives um, to really take best practices that were happening out there, um, focus on either quality or either access, and they tend to be in the zero to five range because there is no existing system there. And we know that in order for an initiative to be successful, we have to be in partnership with the New Haven public school system. Um, and we have found them to be good partners um, so far in terms of being at the table and thinking about this initiative and how do we create a pipeline. Mm -hmm. So if we have um, 14,000 children, almost 15, under the age of eight, 7,000 of those move into the public system. So we have to create a system that is in, in, in um, step and in, in link with where they're going to end up. This is where we live. You're hearing Alex Schiavone, executive director of the Friends Center for Children and interim program director of NH Child. This is an initiative we're learning about today here on the show. Uh, I'm curious of how you're working with uh, the state of Connecticut. Again, in the past, we've heard about initiatives uh, to connect more children to early education. I know there have been challenges with the care for kids reimbursement. Yes. So you have working families who need quality child care and they can't get it. And so that has a, a ripple effect in the family too. And so I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how do you move forward, especially under a new administration? Yeah. So I think um, one of the things that we find is really important in NH Child is actually that we create a system and a pathway and a universe, so to speak, that actually can withstand leadership change, both on a local level. We're on our third um, uh, uh, superintendent in New Haven since we started this initiative, and we're on our second mayor. mayor. So we have to really uh, create something that allows for that. The new um, opportunities that we see, and we've worked with every commissioner um, from Myra through Garth, um, through um, uh, up to Beth now, and so uh, Beth Commissioner Bai. Yes. <laughs> so we're very excited um, to have the opportunity, and I think uh, 
what is becoming increasingly clear and is relevant to this, um, to our work, is that there is a renowned uh, uh, appreciation for the fact that we're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And the crisis is that we do not have opportunities for children and for families to find care so they can work or to find care so that the children are stimulated in the way that they need to be in terms of brain development. Uh, we have found that the um, Office of Early Childhood has been especially supportive of these initiatives in terms of finding ways to close this gap. And their focus um, has really taken on um, an increasing uh, um, focus of the zero to three range, which we find is just a tremendous gap. If you think about in the state of Connecticut, there 4% of the need is being met. It's just such a tremendous opportunity uh, to come in and really have huge impact. So some of the things that we're doing with Office of Early Childhood is thinking about different ways to fund to fund the early care and education. Because what's, what's happening now is not working. As you reference Care for Kids, there's school readiness, there are um, New Haven daycare grant subsidies, um, but it's not enough and it's not working. So how do we shift it? I don't want us to be thinking about how to um, change what's existing, but how to create something new that works. And we also know the achievement gap uh, in this uh, state is abysmal. And then it's uh, and New Haven has a gap of 33%. So you mentioned we are at a crisis point yeah. uh, to uh, tackle some of these challenges. But part of your plan also is uh, with your, you know, coalition with the partners yep. is to, uh, again, uh, provide more slots, but to ensure that that edu the education that the children are receiving is uh, to a certain quality. And that also relates to licensing requirements for staff that are working in these daycare Correct. centers and programs. And, then, and how will you navigate that? Because that has also come up in the past. There have been um, some pushback, worry that some of the workers won't be able to have uh, the resources to uh, try to get that bachelor's degree. I'm curious how you're thinking about that. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many uh, important things to highlight there. One is that it is unrealistic for us as a state to expect a early child care worker to go and get a degree that costs more than their salary in one year, right? So one thing is we have to really take a hard look at how we fund um, early childhood because we are dismissing um, the professionalism of the women. And I say women because it's 99% women. And a huge um, group of that, uh, the women are minority women. So we're o overburdened and, and under-resourced and getting paid uh, sort of in this idea of women's work. So if we are going to expect um, a degree, we have to do a few things. One is we have to create pathways. So New Haven had no pathway, had no degree-granting system. So we, over the last, this has been happening for about four or five years, the New Haven Early Childhood Council have created an MOU, an, an agreement between Gateway Community College and Southern so that people can start at Gateway and move into Southern for their four-year degree to meet the requirement for the state. Um, where the state comes in and where they do have funds is through their charts of course work, and they offer support for teachers who are getting their degree. The requirement, however, is that you are a head teacher to be able to access those funds. We would like to shift that and make it accessible to people as they move to the pipeline. Because if you only have head teachers who have access, you're not then creating the next person who's going to be moving into that. And when you have a stratified workforce, stratified workforce mm -hmm. where you have um, white teachers who tend to be in the head teacher position, you're not allowing for shifting or moving across um, um, hierarchically for, mm -hmm. a, for a whole subset of, of people, of women. Yeah. Uh, so uh, as we mentioned, this is a pilot starting in, in New yes. Haven uh, with the hopefully uh, legs to expand. <laughs> uh, 
and change how early education is uh, perceived, uh, the need for it uh, throughout the state of Connecticut. Um, We only have a couple of minutes left, Alex. So where do you go from here? What are your next steps? Uh, um, (laughs) I I think that our plan is really to outline the six uh, buckets of work. We have a strategic plan that takes us from point A to point Z for each of the areas that I mentioned before with a budget, with a dollar amount um, included. We are in partnership and in relationship with other communities um, across the nation, actually. Boston, Tulsa. Well, those are actually ones we looked at, but we're looking more in Colorado, New Jersey, places who are doing work. And so um, we believe that the work that we're doing here is not proprietary. It needs to be shared. It needs to be communicated. We have a universal problem across Connecticut and across the country in terms of how we manage and think about young children and what we need to do for them. And so we want to share the the information that we have. We are creating a data dashboard um, to track our work, and we believe that is applicable to every municipality and every um, city or or town in the state, as well as at the federal level. And we've been working with um, federal... uh, members of the existing um, uh, delegation. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Who uh, have really been interested in the data dashboard as ways to track. So we're really excited about the implications primarily for New Haven and then externally. Well, we look forward to checking in on this initiative as it continues to grow. But thank you so much, Alex Schiavone, Executive Director of the Friends Center for Children, Interim Program Director of this initiative in piloting in New Haven called NH Child. Uh, Alex, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>